Are you ready for innovation in contact lenses, fitting, delivering, inventorying? Yes, it's here and it will be here on January 1st. So stay tuned for our podcast with Jeff Sensino, OD of Nashville and Andy Barrow, CEO of Iris. We have a lively discussion about optometry and the changes in the contact lens market. Stay tuned. I'd like to introduce our texting platform. We know that sometimes people don't want to put their information or their message out to the public, but we are interested in your feedback. So if you were kind enough to text your opinions, please do so at 913-660-2855. 913-660-2855. Let your voice be heard. We want to hear it. Welcome to Eyetrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. I'm Dr. Raymond Brill with my co-host, Perry Brill, and we're here to bring you stories about Wizards of Eyes. Yes, what is a wizard, Dr. Brill? Well, these are folks that you may have heard about, may not have heard about. These are people who are actually very successful in doing what they do in all aspects of eye care. We're not talking to self-proclaimed industry geniuses, experts, masters, or gurus because we're talking to wizards of eyes that make it happen each and every day. They are out there working every day in the labs, on the road, in the practices, in surgery suites, making lenses, making frames. Yes, we want to hear these back-of-the-house stories about innovation, entrepreneurship, and make you feel excited to do what you do. We want you to be energized about the whole eye care field. And this is not your big optical program. This is done out of the passion of our hearts. Please go ahead and subscribe to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite app. Also, visit Entrepreneur.com where you'll find our latest blogs and special video content. That's www.eyetrepreneur.com. Today, we're pleased to have on the podcast, Dr. Jeff Sensino. He is co-owner of a multi-specialty group practice in Nashville called Optique Eyewear and Eye Care, or Eye Care and Eyewear. And Andy Barrow, he is the CEO of Iris, and Dr. Sensino is also Chief Medical Officer of Iris. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. All right. Well, we're happy that you could join us on the Entrepreneur Podcast, and we got a number of topics to go over. We would, uh, but I would like to start off with perhaps uh, Dr. Sensino. You could tell us a little bit your, about your journey in optometry, uh, your your numerous accolades, and then Andy, maybe you could tell us your business journey here, how you got involved with eye care, and and uh, we'll start there. Great. Thanks, Ray, for having us. This is going to be a lot of fun. We, uh, we're going to stir the pot a little bit this morning. Oh, that's good. It needs I, um, My background, uh, I started after cornea and contact lens residency in academic medical practice. So I built 
the region's largest uh, complex contact lens practice in an academic medical center. And then about 11 years later, I decided that my wife was doing so well in private practice a block away, why don't I join her? So, you know, I knew the science of contact lenses really well. I just didn't know if I could make a living at it. And so when I left, I thought, you know, I was just going to settle into a, a normal practice. And um, that's in fact what I did. The, um, the business of, of making a living at contact lenses was something that I totally focused my career on. And I learned that there were a lot of challenges that were presented to optometrists in private practice. And so I got together with all of my buddies on the national scale and we crafted some, some ways to kind of stay afloat. Um, and then a few years later, I realized that no matter how well that we did as, as private practice optometrists, unless we banded together and did things on the national scale, um, you know, it was gonna be a tough future. So I started getting involved in lots of leadership activities. Um, I got very heavily involved with the American Optometric Association. I got heavily involved with the Academy of Optometry and heavily involved with a new group called um, the Alliance for Patient Safety. And you know, I ended up being the chair of the contact lens section for the AOA. I ended up getting the advocacy award uh, nationally and most recently, uh, this past year, I was the optometrist of the year in Tennessee. Wow. That's, that's my background. Well, you're Je Jeff, your wife must have to worship you now before uh, you leave the off leave home, right? <laughs> Actually. I can answer that. <laughs> she doesn't. Yeah. Does she, bow, does she uh, bow at least once in a while? Or? Actually, you know what? It's funny. Or you still have to take out the trash. No, I, I'm like the plumber, the electrician at the practice. But my wife just recently won, uh, you know, uh, the, the Nashville Scenes Top Optometrist of the City Award. And so every time um, I do something wrong in the practice, she does remind me that she's the number one optometrist in Nashville. Nashville's best. There you go. Well, that's, that's good. Well, you're sharing accolades here and uh, a little one-upsmanship up, one in the practice doesn't hurt. Do you have you any know, other doctors too, or is it, is it just the, you two? We, we have four doctors total. I see. And how many locations? Uh, just a single location. Okay. All right. Good. We, we always believe in making one powerful location here on Entrepreneur. Yes. Everyone wants to split the pie many ways, but uh, power practice is good. Um, and how about you, Andy? Let's hear about your journey into the business world. And how'd you get hooked up with guy like Jeff. Okay, so, you know, I started um, as an entrepreneur. I mean, at the time, that word wasn't even really much of a word. Um, back when I was 16, um, I remember I was dating um, a wealthy real estate magnate as daughter. And I came home one Saturday at 16 years old telling him that I just got my first Saturday job. And he just basically looked blankly at me and um, it was in shoes, which was my father's business. And he said to me, I'm, you know, I'm just shocked. You just didn't start up your own store. You know, and I just looked blankly at him, you know, as a 16 year old would when approached with a statement like that. 
And, but long story short, um, I did. I started my own shoe store at 16. I had three by the time I was 18. I was still going to school. Um, but I went on a, I sold them and I went on a around the world trip and America was year three of that trip. And I was only planning to be here for a year. I wasn't sure that I was going to love, I knew I was going to love a lot about the country. I wasn't sure I was going to love Americans. My entire exposure had been Dallas and J.R. Ewing and Taxi. I think that was. Well, where were you from? I detect you have a, a British accent of some sort. Where do yeah, you I'm from, from the southeast of England. Oh. Okay. Um, I lived there. I had my 23rd birthday here. I'm now 51. So I've spent oh. some time here in the States. And, right. you know, my education was all geared towards architecture. And I was going to be going back to England to um, go to school at Reba, which is the Royal Institute of British Architects. Um, but I ended up falling in love with America about six months after I got here. I joined a band, which resulted in four years of um, that journey, which led to a career with Warner Brothers, which led to a career um, working with all the major labels in the country um, via uh, one of the founders of Muzak. Um, I went from there into entertainment. Andy, Andy discovered Katy Perry. Well, okay, yes, yeah, our label signed her to her very first record deal when she was still Katie Hudson. Oh, wow. Um, back in the day, um, before she kissed a girl and changed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was um, exciting to watch her career. So again, somebody that's just dedicated everything to the pursuit of actually achieving what they set out to. And I admire that in a lot of people. Um, and I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of people like that that have been great mentors to me, one of which was um, Faith Popcorn. I worked on Madison Avenue uh, for Brain Reserve, which is an applied futurism agency, um, working with C-suite levels of Fortune 100 predominantly um, on the future of their businesses as categories, you know, way advanced in the future. You know, these large corporations are big ships to turn. They're not nimble like startups. So it's a much bigger venture. Um, so that's an example. I had my own show on ABC for a few years. Um, the architectural side came out and I had a show on ABC called Let's Make a Space. It came on right before Extreme Hunger. Yeah, on Sundays, back in the early 2000s. And okay. since then, um, you know, all of these experiences, I've been working with, you know, VC firms, working with companies that had great ideas um, from people within an industry, which is where most of these great ideas come from. Right? And, uh, but they don't know how to execute them because they're, you know, they're within the industry. They're, in Jeff's case, you know, Jeff's an optometrist. He's not um, necessarily a product developer, even though he works at um, Vanderbilt on many patents in this field. Um, bringing a product to market is a very different um, proposition altogether. So, so how did you, how did you two, how did you two connect in the business world? So um, you, you came into eye care. It sounds like you really didn't have an introduction into healthcare because uh, you were really in the entertainment space. Well, actually, um, no, prior to that, and um, again, I, I was about to say that I was been working with VC companies. I have actually worked with two healthcare companies before I met Jeff. Both of us startups in distress um, that had worked their way through their initial funding, 
things weren't going well, and then I was the guy that got sent in to fix it. And turned, before I met Jeff, had recently turned around two local companies here in Nashville um, that were both in the health and wellness space. Um, and one of them, which was also with a class two medical device. Um, so really that's why the VC company actually introduced me to Jeff. You know, my initial funding for Iris came from a local tech healthcare accelerator. And they gave well, I can back then. Yeah, right. And they gave me some money to kind of take what was in my mind and get it off the ground. And I quickly realized that, you know, I have the industry know-how and I have the industry contacts, but running a company is not something that I was interested in doing. I, I love running my practice. Well, I should say that my wife loves running our practice. But, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I'm not a, an operator. And so I approached these guys and I said, I, I need help. I need somebody to co-found this company with me who is a hardcore business strategist who can take what's in my mind and make it a successful company. And so these guys sat me next, sat me next to this guy that I'm sitting next to right now, Andy. And Andy's job was to go try to figure out which company he wanted to work with next. And that, that dinner that he was supposed to talk to three other companies, we ended up talking all night and we literally haven't stopped talking for about a year and a half now. So we are in communication every single day for the last year and a half. And it's just turned out to be such a wonderful partnership into making something that is sorely needed in optometry a reality. Yeah. So Jeff, before we get into, you know, your, your story of what's going on currently, tell us, I think we need to set the, the scene for sure. what's happening in eye care right now. So, uh, you know, on the entrepreneur podcast here, we, we don't believe in doom and gloom. That's for, um, don't say it. Don't <laughs> say it. <laughs> That's for, uh, the mindset of people who are not innovative and people who graduated from optometry school or, opth or ophthalmology programs, and I say they were inoculated. They were inoculated, they were at their best, and they have not done much since. Hey, Ray, hey, Ray, yes. I gotta tell you a story. So I was the, uh, the note taker for my first year anatomy class okay. in optometry school, and the professor, Tom Fredo, who is like a giant in oh, optometry, sure. The first day of class, he gets up in front of the, the class and says, guys and gals, I'm here to tell you that 80% of you are going to get through optometry school, and for the rest of your careers, you're going to go to sleep. That's I don't it. want you to be in that 80%. I want you to be in the 20% who thinks. Yeah, I just had a, a meeting with an optometrist yesterday, and he um, he was criticizing me because I would write apology letters to the state board for how many hours I would have. And he said, he told me, he said, you probably have the record of the most continuing education hours ever of anyone in Kansas. And he, he was proud. He said, I only got 24. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, I don't know if I would be proud of that. But <laughs> most, of, most of the time, uh, I mean, heading to the academy meeting, meeting next week, I'm sure I'll see you there. Uh, it's pretty easy to get 40 hours of CE, but you learn a lot of it in the hallway from people, from people yeah. like you. So, so there's a lot of people that do just coast along and, and I think their practices coast along and they use, and the external forces um, are, the, are the factors that they look 
they cannot control. And, and I'm, I'm proud to, to know that you and Andy are really are trying to thwart these external forces and make it so that what, um, what the challenges are really turn into opportunities and that you don't that you know how to do a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And there's a flip side of for all the, all those uh, different threats, right? And 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 some people call that disruptive innovation. Uh, disruptive innovation is a little bit different to me, but we won't get into that MBA definition of it. So uh, so tell us a little bit how. Um, you're, you're going to be how you're changing or your approach to uh, I care is or what? Um, so ultimately, you mentioned that you know ODs maybe have sort of slept at the wheel from leaving college, but I think you know they're in an industry that for the longest time hasn't innovated outside of maybe some technologies relative to you know lens design and things like that. Ultimately, the industry's been very stagnant and it hasn't really had to change. It's operated. Um, you know, historically about the same for decades now. And, you know, as a result, you know, what we're seeing now is an industry that was um, spotted by these commoditization type groups that have come along and just said, okay, these guys are asleep at the wheel. This is an easy take. And which is why the last three years you've seen so much just literally come out of nowhere and everybody in the industry, the industry itself and ODs in general, have literally been shocked into um, the awareness of the current state. So it's not really just ODs. I mean, the industry wasn't doing anything to protect itself either. The big four, you know, the approach, uh, um, the ever-changing consumer landscape, you know, that's changed tremendously. Yet marketing is the same as it was 20 years ago in the medical field. You know, I got to work with Bayer, Allergan, and several other companies on product releases. Um, and, you know, again, medical marketing in general has been very stale, stagnant, and consumers are looking for a lot more um, in their relationship with the companies that they buy from. So, again, yes, ODs are certainly to blame for not um, standing up sooner and taking on the fight, but I think the industry has been very very lax and sort of like sitting on it's too big to fail at it. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree there. I think, you know, we think of disruption as just products, you know, transitions, contact lenses, blue light lenses, you know, those are not really yeah. disruptions. Those are products. So yeah. I think, I think of it, disruption today as a whole ecosystem infiltrating an industry. So, yeah. um, you know, that happens um, with, you know, private equity, you know, that's an ecosystem coming in. But, uh, but also disruptive innovation means that sometimes you get a product that is just good enough. You know, evidence all the uh, beautiful video cameras that we had, like when my kids were born uh, 30 years ago, you had a, everybody's got a video, their kid coming out of the womb, and it was a very elaborate camera. It was big, and, but people right now uh, are happy to have a camera just or a video camera on their phone. It doesn't have a lot of features on it. It's getting better but it's readily available and it's cheap or actually it's free. So those are disruptive innovations. And when we're talking in, in eyewear, maybe somebody just doesn't want a fancy pair. They want a pair for like $7.99. So while we are more highly differentiated in our private practices, having 
you know, elaborate dry eye equipment and stuff to fit scleral lenses better. There's always somebody else there and saying, like, look, I'm just going to make a just good enough product who uh, maybe is not even that good, but price-wise patients are willing to accept mediocrity. And that's a true definition of uh, disruptive innovation, which I, I think goes in the face of our highly differentiated uh, high-tech practices. So we have to be thinking about that as telehealth and as online refractions and online glasses, everything. So we have to kind of work both sides of it almost. So really? I, I, I want to talk about, um, you know, we have a lot of state organizations, national organizations, and we for a long time believed they're, they're at our side. We've got the lawyers and the politicians all going to bat for us so we can sit in our little offices, spin the dials and go home, right? And live happy. But that's not happening. These organizations are not fighting for us. So tell us uh, your thoughts on that. Well, Perry, I actually disagree. I think there is one organization that is fighting for optometrists every single day because I've watched it. So the American Optometric Association is the only barrier when it comes to these huge corporate interests just bulldozing the, the normal guy, the, the Main Street optometrist. Make no mistake, if the, if the AOA is not successful in, in their ability to legislate for, in our favor, these corporate interests, they rule the, the roost because they pour so much money into the hands of the legislators that they sway the votes. And the votes, we, we're a legislative profession. Make no mistake about that. I mean, if, if, if the legislation that keeps patients safe, meaning you know, prescription requirements uh, for class two and three medical devices, which is what contact lenses are, if that gets uh, loosened or, or, um, or, or lax because these corporate interests want to just sell product, people lose eyes. I mean, I have a classic example of, of one of these, these cases in my practice where this kid who is in his 20s comes into my practice after purchasing lenses on 1-800-CONTACTS for three years without an appointment. He comes in and he came to see me for a second opinion because he had a little bit of eye irritation. He goes to a local ophthalmologist. The ophthalmologist sends him immediately to a cornea specialist's office. While he was in the waiting room of the cornea specialist's office, his eye perforated due to pseudomonas ulcer. So he gets rushed into emergency PK surgery. The surgeon had to put in such a large graft, an 11 and a half millimeter graft, that this kid for the rest of his life, because of its proximity to the limbal vasculature, he will have to have a repeat PK every five years for the rest of his life. Why? Because 1-800-CONTACTS wanted to make a couple hundred dollars off of him and, and dissuaded him from having his routine eye care, which if we saw blood vessel growth, which would signal hypoxia, the risk for developing one of those uh, complications is extremely low. If I had seen him in my practice, I would have switched him to daily disposable lenses. And we all know that daily disposable lenses, whether hydrogel or silicone hydrogel, have a much better risk profile than any monthly lens or two-week lens. So we can prevent things like this, but we can only prevent it if these corporate interests don't have their way. And the 
only ones standing in their way is, is the American Optometric Association. You know, Jeff, I, do, I agree with you. Uh, I've been a 45-year member of the AOA. And, um, you know, it, it, they do everything kind of behind the scenes, though. We don't really know. And what was always frustrating to me is that pe people still do not know what an optometrist is and how often you need to get to it. So I think they're good on the legislative field, but the message doesn't come down to uh, those of us out here in, in uh, just in the States. So, I mean, as somebody from outside the field of optometry, it was why I had such a unique perspective um, when I was looking at this because again, I was completely unaware. We grow up our entire lives knowing what we need to do about taking care of our teeth, right? I mean, you know, we're practicing right. brushing our teeth when we're tiny kids. We know that we have to get a cleaning every six months. There's all of this stuff that we're aware of relative to certain areas of our health. And, you know, one of the things, one of the statements that we have as a company is that there's so much more to your eye health than just vision. I mean, from all of my consumer research, it's the same thing. You know, when you only go see an eye doctor, when you start having trouble seeing. And of course, that was the same uh, perspective that I had until I met Jeff. And where I really understood, you know, a lot of the benefits that the consumers are completely unaware of. The early detection aspect of what a doc an eye doctor can see um, is, you know, a, a, I believe personally that if that message could get out to consumers. But what Andy's talking about is doing this from a business perspective, not doing this from an American Optometric Association perspective. I, I, I'm not sure that the AOA is responsible for, you know, the message of what gets out to consumers. The, the AOA is responsible for making sure consumers are safe. Um, but I, I think we can do it from a business perspective. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Okay. Yeah, we want to talk about that. Um, so I know we, you have this thing that what you call bad players tactics. And um, I'm assuming that relates to some, uh, some business players out there in the industry right now. So why don't you go ahead and define what that is and you know, how it's affecting us little guys in the field who are independents. Look, you know, every optometrist, optician, ophthalmologist, has seen the bad behavior online. You know, there are companies right now who are actively trying to dissuade the public from getting routine eye care. You know, there's a company that's actually owned by 1-800-CONTACTS making glasses um, who is, is telling consumers in a very consumer-friendly advertising that eh, you don't need to go get your eyes checked to ye old. Uh, optometrist's office, just 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 hold your iPhone in front of the glasses that you have right now. You can figure out the prescription using our software, and then you don't need to go for an eye exam. You know, 1-800-CONTACTS, their classic commercial is, hey, skip the eye puff test. You don't need to do that. Just do an online eye exam with, with, with us, and we'll renew your prescription. Yeah. There's a, uh, you know, there's a guy who's an ophthalmologist. He's a retina specialist and he's robo signing all of the 1-800-CONTACTS um, uh, uh, contact lens prescriptions. This guy, he, he actually got up in front of the, the FDA and testified 
and said, oh, you know what? I've never seen a complication from contact lenses in my career because he's a retina specialist. I mean, just very disingenuous behavior all around from the marketing aspect, from the consultants that they hire. Um, and you know, the Hubble issue. You know, if you, if you get on any of the message boards with an optometry, you see the bad behavior um, and, and optometrists complaining about the bad behavior where, you know, the, these Hubble type uh, companies are, are trying to verify prescriptions illegally. Uh, they're calling optometrists on their cell phones Sunday at nine o'clock at night. I mean, it's, it's horrific behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the glasses company is called Lingo and actually did try it this uh, last week. I'm a minus uh, six and seven. And I did hold my phone between uh, my, my frames and my computer screen and um, had a poor result. Let me say that. Well, you know, so Jeff brings up a good point. When we are uh, speaking out about uh, these infractions of big companies that are trying to uh, create like a little turf battle, you know, we, they try to make us look like the greedy provider or uh, what does Warby Parker middle say? Man. The greedy middleman. And so, so this is where it's nice if, you know, for dentistry, I mean, everybody knows you got to get your teeth cleaned uh, every six months because uh, Crest has been telling him that since the 1950s, but we have not had really good industry support as far as I, I can tell to tell patients you need, when do you need to get your eyes checked and to do things on a routine basis. And, and I'm not surely why that we have not had that good industry support, but uh, it has to become natural where everybody says, oh yeah, you need to get your eyes checked every year or whatever the frequency is that, that uh, is determined. So where are our industry supporters on just on general eye care? You know, how are, why are they not helping us like Crested for dentistry? I think that they would be thrilled if, um, we would all be thrilled if, if consumers were going once a year um, with, with that frequency. I think that, um, the issue is, I mean, you say, you know, the industry's not done anything about that, but I mean, there was a, an initiative that's still going, right? That's had millions of dollars pumped into it. The Think About Your Eyes campaign, right? Which is supposed to be a consumer, you know, public service sort of announcement type campaign that's telling people why they need to do it. The trouble is, it's just not effective. Now, they'll right. make the claims about the fact that that it's generated thousands of eye exams and everything else. But, you know, I've spoken to people in the industry, outside of the industry, no one's ever heard of it. No one's ever heard of it, that's right. And millions of dollars have gone into it. And the reality is you can put millions of dollars into anything. The, the amount of money that goes into something doesn't make it successful. And the reality is we live in a world where the landscape is changing much faster than we're used to having to deal with change. So that by the time that we come up with an idea about how to solve a problem, the problem itself has already in fact changed. So now that approach is now insignificant. One of the things that I used to do at Brain Reserve is we would look at the impact of technologies and understand the fact that we're such rabid um, consumers of technological advancement that no one pays any attention to the consequences of technologies before they're released to the public. And make no mistake, I mean, as I sit here doing what I'm doing with Jeff 
for the, the betterment of the future of optometry and consumer eye health, I 100% will tell you that within the decade, a lot of these things that we're seeing the technologies for today will be in place and they will be effective. And I will, I will argue, go to the mattresses with anybody that tells me anything different because we've seen it unfold in every aspect of technology and in fact medicine um, around. Somebody will solve these problems, but the reality is we need to be solving those problems from within the industry. We need to be looking at the fact that yes, you know what? The world is changing, consumer behavior is changing. We need to adapt. We can't just put the stake in the ground and just say, well, this is the way we've always done it. So this is the way that we always need to do it. So the reality is, is that, you know, one of our goals at Iris is absolutely, you know, is everything that we're doing today is relevant today. It is safe today. It is the best thing for the consumer today. It's the best thing for the optometrist today. But our product development cycle, you better believe it's going to include working on a lot of technologies, but I want them to be in the hands of the optometrist that's presenting it to the world and not these companies that have no background in healthcare, eye care, that are just putting out these technologies that aren't ready for consumer adoption. You just brought up the classic example of Lingo, but there are many others out there. Um, again, an online vision test, by the way, let's make this very clear, is not a vision test. It's at best a sight test, at best. Um, and, and Ray, one of the things that you brought up and I need to be explicit about this, is the rise of 1-800 contacts and their ilk, meaning the, the disruptors that care nothing about the industry, was purely brought on by companies like the big four. The big four were complicit in allowing them to rise to power. Why? Because the big four wanted to make money. And the big four could have very easily said, nah, you know what, we're not going to sell to you. And, and they wouldn't have had to. But the second they started selling to these companies, then every product that they launched ever since they agreed to sell to them, they now need to sell to them. Yeah. Yes, I think it's always hypocritical. We'll get a, a contact lens rep from one of the big four in. And, and when they're talking to private practitioners, they're pretending like they don't deal with the, the large chains, uh, let's say Walmart, for example. And, and they don't deal with the 1-800 type purveyors. And I think when in fact, it's much easier for them to go to Bentonville and make a huge sale, you know, sure. truckloads of, of AccuViews or, or what other, whatever product du jour is. And it's much easier actually than to go to 1-800 contacts than it is to call on 30,000 individuals where, you know, we, we can't, uh, you know, a big order for us is a $10,000 order. And I remember a long time ago asking when, when Siba was a Siba name. So can I get a discount? Oh no, we don't get a discount to anybody. I said, how about if I want $10,000 worth of uh, uh, D, uh, Durasoft uh, Torx. D2s, oh, yeah, well, D3s, yeah. Yeah, and they said, oh, well, we'll get it down from $42 to $28. And I thought, and I'm only buying $10,000 worth. And, and I think, imagine if you said, I want to buy like $100 million. You know, what can you get? Can you get it to $4? And so, so what's interesting is ODs think, oh, I got to match prices. I got to match prices. Well, they can match price all they want, but I mean, you, you may end up going out of business for that. And I think the consumers don't necessarily expect we in, in substantial private practices to really 
have to match the price. I mean, we're offering other value and we got to be somewhere in the ballpark, but, but uh, I mean, again, you, your point is well taken, especially relative to what you said, um, you know, relative to pricing. Um, hang on, shit, I just lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> hang on. Um, you're talking about, oh yeah. So, you know, when you talk about the fact that, yeah, it's easier for a company to go to Bentonville and sell, you know, 80% of what they're manufacturing in one shot, you know, I think it's all of these, you know, these shortcuts that are, that are happening all over the industry. I mean, it's just, it's laziness. And it's also, I mean, all of these companies have shareholders and they have to show, you know, profits and they have to show more profits. And when they get those profits, they need to show more profits. And it drives these people to these sort of, you know, I don't know that anybody really, when they start out, has these intentions, but just by, if you're not in control of your business and you're not even in control or have foresight to understand the impact of your decisions, you end up in these situations where you just become a bad player because you've made mistakes that you can't reverse. To Jeff's point, you know, when, when he, what, what was it? You said there was one, uh, one 800 contacts won a lawsuit against J&J because they tried to keep one of their lenses back purely for a private practice optometry, correct? Uh, it, was, it was UPP, so unilateral pricing. And basically the government said, you cannot do that, or the courts said, you cannot do that. So basically J&J is now forced into selling all these bad players because they made very bad decisions in the past. Oh, they are. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, the, the, the benefit that, of course, that provides the people, you know, with foresight going into business is, you know, the landmines to avoid. And I think, you know, part of the reason that so many of these disruptive forces are so successful is because, you know, they start with a clean slate they either hit on a couple of very consumer sensitive issues, again, relative to fun, marketing, great price, convenience, and then they skip, you know, the care and the product quality. So again, everyone sort of takes a stab at it without trying to address it as a whole. I mean, if you can offer the doctor a reason to carry it and prescribe it because it's a good lens and they can make a living from it. That is a great product for the consumer that is at a low cost. That's where you start to win when you're, when you basically you're addressing every part of the ecosystem. You can't just attack certain aspects of it and hit that. Well, you can actually, you can and you do, but let's face it, Hubble's, complaints at the, um, what is it, the FTC or whatever it is, you know, are in the thousands now because uh, of those issues. So so I want to talk about good players and good tactics. And I think one of them that's coming into the the space is Iris. So um, tell us how you spell that, what your website is, and what the heck are you doing in Nashville to, to get this off the ground? Sure, the company's name is Iris, E-Y-E-R-I-S, obviously a play on Iris. Um, You know, ultimately the company um, is designed to serve the optometrist and the consumer both equally. Um, 
with the same benefits. We, we started a year ago um, really working hard on Iris. Prior to that, it was a company called Well Eye Care. Um, but when we rebranded the whole thing, put together a business model that, um, you know, ultimately, this is, and this is the other key um, point about, you know, why we knew we were going to be successful. You know, our first 10 investors were all optometrists. They were like, okay, this is right. This is the way that this should happen. And, you know, we've gone on since then. You know, I mean, we're up to 17, 18 optometrists, you know, on our cap table already. Um, because they're like, yes, this is actually a well-rounded solution. Now, to what get is, to what that, is What is Iris? What is the solution? What are you selling? Define that for us. So, you know, we have um, a what is known in the world, the way that we're pitching it to doctors is a patient finder. You know, most of the world that we uh, live in, you know, we live in the world of doctor fighters and lists and doc docs and all of these other things that are out there, but we're actively going out with the, the messaging that consumers need to hear relative to their eye care. We poke fun at what the people are putting out there, you know, in regards to online vision tests. And at the end of all of these commercials, we prompt them to set up and see an eye doctor. That's one aspect. So it plays into the convenience factor that all of these kind of bad disruptors are playing into. But we are able to offer a convenience to consumers just like they would if they went to Uber or Open Table. So they're able to see a top eye doctor in their area on their schedule. Within, within even a day. So is this for people that don't have an eye doctor, they don't know where to go, or you know, how are they finding you know, your website? Is it through Facebook ads, Instagram, YouTube? You know, what are they doing to, to find an eye doctor? Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, ultimately, they're gonna be finding it everywhere. It won't just be all of the social channels that are out there, it will also be cable advertising, TV commercials in that regard as well. We're going to be very proactive about putting out the message that consumers need to hear. But consumers believe that finding an eye doctor is fine, the same as finding any doctor. It's a real pain in the butt. I mean, you've got to search, call them, find out if they take your insurance, get all that lined up, only to find out that it's going to be three weeks before you can see them. So, and that's not how current culture works. We're used to getting things when we want it on our schedule. So it was like, how do we create something that delivers top quality eye care with somebody that you want to see? It's, it's like, you know, if you call a contractor to do a remodel on your house and he's like, yeah, I can start tomorrow. You're immediately like, oh, do I really need somebody that's that available? So, you know, people want to see good quality people, which are, of course, because they're good, they're booked further out. Um, but you all suffer from cancellations and no-shows. And our technology it's completely, um, it's not connected to any of the, the booking softwares, EMRs, that you guys, EMRs and things like that. It operates completely outside of that. And we probably won't want to get into that too much today, but a lot of um, information is available about that at myiris.com and um, for doctors to find out about it. But that's one thing. But obviously the other thing is the product. And we've been working very, very hard to be able to, again, provide a quality lens that would, if the big four released, it would be 
a $700 lens um, at a cost that consumers can afford that competes with all the other things they're seeing. So we have a daily disposable hydrogel spherical lens that has a really high decay. Um, it is a very soft material, so it's incredibly comfortable. It is available only through the doctors in our network and directly uh, available through our website. And if the patient purchases it through our website, the doctor who prescribes it realizes the same margin as if it had been sold in their office. It comes at a cost to consumer of $4.59 a year. And there's no rebates to mess around with. This is just the MSRP and that we're gonna be advertising all over the place. But the key is there's a $200 doctor margin. So it's a margin percent of 45%. So here we have a top quality daily disposable lens that's available to the consumer at near the lowest cost of any lens out there and the highest doctor margin for, for that cost of a lens. It gives the doctors and the patients what they need. The only people it disrupts are the big four and the online middlemen who are trying to just get in between the sale because we do not sell to them. Our lens is also in a proprietary base curve and diameter, so it is not substitutable. This is not a private label lens like the big four tried to you know, serve us a, a poop sandwich and, and teach us to like. So do you think patients, when they get fit with this lens, are they gonna be upset that they can't go to 1-800.com and, and find the iris lens? Or are they gonna be like, uh, I think I can find this cheaper on you know, some other third party site? Well, I mean, I think one thing that we know is, is that consumer behavior doesn't change overnight, right? So I think you know, we, we all make the assumption that the average sale relative to contact lenses in the doctor's office is that they're likely going to get the first 90-day supply order because if the consumer is actually utilizing their insurance benefit, right? And I think that's another important thing that, you know, we're getting doctors to talk about is that if they use their insurance, if they do have coverage and they use their $120 to $150 um, allowance, it's actually cheaper than Waldo, Hubble, Aveo, and all of those things that are out there by about $60 to $90. So, um, you know, we definitely believe that they're gonna, what they're going to do is they're going to go home and they're going to go try find it. They won't be able to find it. They'll only see um, Iris online and then they'll go there and they'll see it's exactly the same price as the doctor quoted them. Yeah, but I think, I think the, the idea that patients will be able to be, to purchase something directly from the manufacturer, that's quite a different thing. I mean, if they, they, they see 1-800 as a middleman because they're not the manufacturer. So the doctor in the office can say, yeah, you can buy from us or you can buy it directly from the manufacturer. And consumers realize that buying directly from the manufacturer is always cheaper than going through a middleman. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. So uh, I want to move into the topic of what's happening uh, in Nashville. It seems like you guys have some doctors on board. You're funneling uh, patients their way. So how's that working out for you? Well, we actually, it's interesting, you know, we, we've started um, the patient finder in Nashville, but we have already a network of um, optometry offices that spans every state in the country, except North Dakota and Maine. 
and we're coming for you, North Dakota and Maine. Um, <laughs> it's only like 10 doctors there, so. <laughs> so, so we have doctors in every state, and we have a fairly large network already. What we do with the patient finder is we start deploying social media assets when we've built up a critical mass of doctors. Because the last thing we want to do is promote this to the, to the patients and then not have the ability, not have the doctors, enough doctors with the availability to see those patients. So what we're working on now is building up um, the critical numbers of doctors that we need in each of the cities that we've targeted for launch um, to be able to deploy the patient finder. We've just launched Chicago, um, and that reached critical mass last week, and we'll be releasing New York either during the time that we're at Academy or very soon after. Um, so we're very, you know, aggressively, you know, going after our doctor acquisition efforts. But I think one of the things that surprised us both is that, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, when Jeff and I were talking early on in the early stages of creating this model, was that, you know, doctors haven't really engaged in the fight before. They've sort of been sitting back with their woe is me attitude, just expecting somebody else to change it for them. And I think that what I've been surprised and very happy to see is that, you know, outside of all of the key opinion leaders and the network connections that Jeff has, you know, we're seeing people pick up on this and like call us and say, what can I do to help? I mean, we've had calls with people in states that we've never met, you know, Jeff's not even met that have been like, I love what you guys are doing. How can I help you in this state? You know, I'll tell you the patient finder for me, for my own practice, it's making things fun again. Now I'll, I'll get, the, the, the patient finder, the way it works, it's, it's an extremely sophisticated algorithm where if the patient selects that they want an eye exam, whatever time it is, pings all the doctors in that area in our network, and the first three doctors to respond back um, are presented to the patient. So when I get that email that says, hey, Iris has a patient for you, Can you, they have Blue Cross Blue Shield Medical and VSP eye insurance, can you see them tomorrow at 10 a.m.? All I have to do is I have to hit yes or no on, on that email, and then I get entered into the mix. So when I get those emails, I'm like, oh, hit it now. So I, so I hopefully get the patient. And I, the very first patient that came through, I'll never forget, um, well, one of our doctor investors is down the street from me. He's a good buddy of mine. And... Um, we both kind of hit the, the button, I guess, at the same time, but the patient shows him over my practice. Yeah, so I mean, basically, the consumer fills out a very short form, you know, um, do they want to see a doctor today or tomorrow? That's as far out as we allow them to book, how far they're willing to travel, and um, what carriers they have. We don't get into a lot of plan details, but what carriers they have and the reason for visiting. So, and again, I... Our system says, okay, they're in this zip code. They want to travel no more than five miles. All of the doctors in the network um, that have set up their practices properly get desktop notifications at all of the computers they set it up at, texts and emails. Now, again, this is to give the doctors control. You know, as for example, like a ZocDoc, I can just pick an appointment and I'm immediately entered into their calendar. You know, this puts right. schedule in the doctors and the front office staff's control. 
because they might not want to see a patient. Because it may be, it, it, it sounds like sending a message out to Uber drivers who's in the yeah. area. Exactly. It's exactly the same thing. And I think the fun part about it is too, is um, like the Jeff pointed out, is that it's, again, as soon as we get three, we send an email to the consumer says, you know, and this all happens very quickly. We found three doctors that are willing to see you on your schedule. So again, we're making it all about the patient. Right. Whereas they, their experience is it's always about the doctor and the doctor's availability. So you've completely reversed the psychology there of the fact that they feel in control. And then they get to sit there and they get three little mini bios of the practice, their Google reviews and stuff like that, how far away they are from them. And when they hit that select, then they, they just get a message saying, you're all done, you just need to show up. The doctor gets the, um, but on the, the panel, on the back end panel, um, that the doctors can see all of the matches and how they've played out, they get to see how many they've lost to other doctors, which what? is a really interesting psychology on the doctor side oh, of this FOMO, FOMO, right? FOMO, fear, yeah. Fear of missing out. Yep. So let's get into a little bit uh, about the uniqueness of your contact lens display and, and your packaging. I did see the video when you got your package and everybody was excited. So tell us about that a little bit. We've had the Bausch and Loam uh, this, uh, container for people to recycle it. And I was surprised people really cared about that. So, um, well, I think, you know, again, when you're launching a new product, you have to think about every aspect of it. One of the other things that when Jeff took me into his room full of trial lens sets, I literally, and I was like, wait, so, you know, it looked like a room full of like craftsman tool drawer type scenarios where I'm opening all of these drawers and seeing all of this. It's all got to be manually counted right. and reordered. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is about as antiquated of a process. And again, whoever's job that is, you could pay me $100 an hour and I wouldn't want that job. I mean, you're talking about thousands of SKUs across multiple different types of lenses. And again, so I was like, okay, well, we have to figure this part out as well. Because Jeff's, one of the things that Jeff brought up was, you know, I might want to put a patient in a, give them a trial. And if I go to the trial lens set and the power's not there, I have to give them my second choice. Yes, that's right. That's a terrible I, I, I personally like to have like a, a jukebox model or a red box model and say, just stick them all in that big machine and spit it out. Um, you know, so well, I, think, I don't know yeah, why I mean, nobody, Andy, I don't know why you haven't developed that yet. We need a, <laughs> like a red box well, for contacts. Yeah, we don't care about that lenses. So, but no, we, we have, I mean, obviously I know that you're being sarcastic, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we have created. We're like, let's take the management at the staff level out of the mix. So what we have now, outside of just having a very unique trial lens box in the first place, which, by the way, is actually made from our own recycled contact lens molds, um, is a system that basically manages its own inventory, reorders on its own, um, so that the situation of never having a power available to you is a you know non-issue. So we have a very complex, beautiful, 
trial lens set that, you know, and again, here's another, oh my gosh, no way is I'm, am I going to do this sort of thing. Put it out in the optical. Every time that somebody comes into your office, you basically just look like a glasses showroom. There's nothing in there about contact lenses anywhere. So the reality is, it's like if we're going to all of this trouble to make consumers aware of the product, when they go into that office, they should be able to see something that reminds them, oh my gosh, that's that thing I see. I'll wonder, maybe I'll ask the doctor about whether or not it's a good fit for me. I mean, we're trying to completely shift. And, it, and it's something that Jeff and I had some pretty heated conversations about early yeah. on, right? Yeah. It's like no one's ever going to put that in their optical. Okay, say it again. And so until I realized that even in my own practice, patients don't know that I sell contact lenses. It's no wonder they go to 1-800 to buy their lenses because they don't know that I sell them. So when we put the display in the optical and show patients that we actually do sell contact lenses, it works together with the iris messaging that they're seeing on social media. That's good. On TV and everywhere else. Um, you know, I think the display itself has blown us away. We originally only intended to manufacture a certain amount. They're not cheap to manufacture, obviously. We're talking about a lot of RFID technologies, antennas, cell modules. Verizon's our partner relative to that. Um, you know, this thing is completely uncomplicated to the office. They literally slide it out of a box, plug it in, it self-initializes, reports in to our um, distribution center to let them know that it's up and active and that it's full of inventory. And then it journals everything that happens throughout the course of the day. And at nighttime, it's like, okay, well, these four powers are missing in these quantities. And it just automatically reorders them. Now, it certainly does that within the body of the parameters that move daily. Um, there's other things into takes into consideration relative to the parameters mm -hmm. at the um, opposite ends of the spectrum. We've got a plus six to minus thirteen power range. Why minus wow. thirteen? Wow. Because it's one more than twelve. Yes, <laughs> everyone else is twelve. So we went to thirteen. Just playing off the Spinal Tap humor, just like Tesla did. You know, um, I drive a Tesla, and I always get a crack out of it when I get to turn the volume up to 11. Still to this day, it's funny. Does it really go to 11? It really does, yeah. Well, we're Model 3 and Model S owners here, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, like, I like the dog mode now, so. Yeah, the dog mode, the climate dog mode. Although, yes. it still won't stop somebody bashing your window and if they see a dog in your car. No, it's funny. It's funny, though, because Andy has modeled the Iris company a lot from Tesla. Yes. I mean, to me, it is a company that has, again, had to fight the largest uphill battle of a change in an industry. And as much criticism as they get, which of course it's very easy to do to sit back and quarterback somebody else's efforts. You, you talk about the political climate that we all live in relative to optometry. I mean, imagine it related to fossil fuels and oh, yes. automobile manufacturing. I mean, it's that same level of persistence and pushing through with the right message for the right reasons that we believe that we have a, a really solid answer as not, again, this is not a sole alternative. What we're hoping it's gonna be is an example to other people about how you can keep 
private practice optometry alive by doing the right thing, making it profitable for everybody, good for the consumer across all of their needs as well, without sacrificing quality and eye care. So, um, I mean, we are literally so excited about it every day to work on it. I have, we have a team of people. We have so much fun doing this. Um, you know, we just, we just can't wait for it to be a reality at one one twenty, And of course, we're coming out with all of this messaging that only this lens could be released in the year 2020. I mean, it's not like everybody else isn't going to do that too. But I mean, we're truly starting in 2020. Um, I think it's so, it's so appropriate. I, I, I love the, uh, the Tesla analogy. And we are uh, happy to say that we're Tesla, Tesla owners. Uh, yeah, me too. We have a Tesla, actually, we have a Tesla toy car in the office that when kids behave well during the exam, we will let them run in that toilet <laughs> uh, Tesla toy car. Now, it goes like up to seven miles an hour, so we have to be really careful of the walls. Um, right. And fortunately, we got a long enough hall hallway to, to do that. But it, it tells them, wow, uh, I got a little toy Tesla. And, uh, and I think that I think their model is great. Uh, it flies in the face now of... Uh, politicians who are trying to get rid of fossil fuels and everything else just about in cows. But uh, that's a, that's a, that's a political matter now, but you did just really bring up something that's actually really interesting that you should bring that up. Cause you talk about, we talk about dentistry, what dentistry has done a much better job of too is being a more kid friendly environment. I mean, I've been to dentist offices that are like jungle gyms. The kids. I mean, right. you know, you think about it from the fact of, you know, kids don't, people don't like the dentist. There are a lot of people, and there's a reason the 1 800 contacts is telling you don't deal with the eye puff because nobody likes it. It's like, don't get your eyes dilated because nobody likes it, right? I mean, they've done things to make it a place where you can go and feel more comfortable before you get a procedure that's not necessarily going to be very comfortable for you, but you don't mind going as much. When you go and sit in a sterile office with nothing but magazines for adults and things like that, you're training kids at a very early age to not care about something. You know, we make the mistake of, you know, across all areas of education, especially in this country, but we don't consider the future of our customer. And we're That's not true. prepared to do anything except the immediate things to get us profit right now, but we need to actually embrace kids and teach them early on. That's why dentistry has been so successful where eye care hasn't. And let's not, let's not help dentistry too much. They're dealing with disruptors like we are. They are. They, they just had the, the IPO of Smile Direct Club, which was a, yeah. which is a well, but it's also a Nashville um, headquartered company. But, Smile Direct Club is flying directly in the face. They're the 1-800 contacts. Of right. Right. So I, I want to thank you both. for. We've really enjoyed hearing uh, and feeling your energy. And I, I think what we can summarize in saying it's really about the patient experience. And it's the patient experience online, the patient experience in our office. And you've, you've gone beyond that. And you're going to the doctor experience because we all settle. We settle for uh, 
hardly any innovation. We settled, yes, we got new materials that are rehashes of old materials, but we're really looking forward to stepping up the game here in terms of contact lens provision to optometrists and to our patients and lending some energy to this whole field of contact lenses and, and patient care uh, yeah. and energizing how patients can make appointments. So it's frustrating because we all want appointments. Uh, I'm booked up about six, six weeks, but we all want appointments, but we don't know how to get the patients and the patients don't know where to go. So they go to some top of name place and it may be America's best. And I think, why? I think, why? And I said, I didn't know where to go. And you think, how could you not where to, know where to go? But if you're bombarded all day long by commercials every few minutes, um, that's all they can think about. You know, look at all right. the mattress companies advertising on TV and my pillow. My God, my pillow's on like every 10 minutes. So, um, so we are uh, proud to have you, uh, Jeff and Andy, to kind of offer some new leadership uh, for optometry and increase the patient and doctor experience and lead us into really 2020, so which is so appropriate. Um, so will the contact lenses be available to all of your members here on, on the first? Uh, on the we're first we're releasing or? the, con yeah, we're releasing the contact lenses January 1st, but obviously we're, we're not a big four that can deploy right. 50,000 sets right off the bat. So what we're doing is we're taking it in order of the, the people who have signed up with us. I see. And so my recommendation for your listeners is to get on board with us sooner rather than later so that we can get you out the sets sooner rather than later. And what's the investment? What's the investment for the practices? Zero. Zero. Wow, that's great. It's how do they get on, how do they get on board with you? It's free to join our network and it's free to carry the contact lens. Um, we just, we're looking for the best practices in the U.S. Okay, and how, how should a practice get on board and enroll in your program? They just need to go to myiris.com and click the doctor sign up button in the top right hand corner of the screen. Um, and then they fill out that application. Jeff approves every single doctor and practice that comes into our network. Um, to ensure that we don't get people signing up that are the pole visions and the all of the chains and everything else. We've, you know, We're unfortunately, we've unfortunately turned down doctors, even in private practice optometry for a variety of reasons, because again, we want to have a, a network beyond reproach relative to consumer reviews, relative to the level of services and the equipment that they have in their offices. Um, so on, you know, when those, patients get those three options, every single one of those options, as far as practices, has been approved by Jeff. It's not just like from a listing somewhere. What are you gonna do with the side-by-side side? Side operations? Uh, if they are not in control of their optical, or if they're controlled by a private equity group that basically turns them into a chain, then they are not eligible to be in our network. I see. And, um, I so it's www.myeyeris.com. That's correct. And we'll put a link to uh, that URL in the show notes so you can easily uh, click over and um, see what Iris is all about. And can our listeners get a hold of you both that way? Or is there, do you prefer them to email you in some way or call? 
Um, they absolutely can get hold of us. Um, I am always willing to speak to um, anybody um, at Andy at myiris.com um, that has any questions. Obviously, there's FAQ support and everything on the website. Um, but the, the thing that I love about this platform and what you guys are doing for ODs that are very serious about their business is that I would say this, you know, you, you opened this whole podcast with talking about things that are sort of like good enough, you know, solutions that are good enough that get adopted by um, the industry and consumers. The one thing that if you ask any employee in our company, what two words I expect everybody to have in the top of their mind, it's what? Wait, can I say? Yeah. Everything matters. That's Andy's slogan. Everything matters. I like it. Everything matters. I don't care how small, how insignificant, whether you see it or not, whether you don't see it, everything matters. And if you can take that approach, everything that you do as a business owner and an entrepreneur, you will succeed if you have the perseverance to get through the mire of criticisms, just like Elon Musk at Tesla. I think it's important. And we're certainly not even close to comparing ourselves with that, we're just saying that we love how he has, you know, persevered. And I think that's one of the things that you guys know as entrepreneurs is where most people fail is that they don't persevere, they give up. And there is no such thing at this company and there never will be. Um, we're gonna be fighting for you guys every single day um, for the betterment of optometry and consumer eye health. So. Ray, love doing it. Yeah, Ray and Perry, we just appreciate you giving us the microphone. Yeah, thank you. Very no, much. that's it. You guys deserve to be on this uh, stage here, and um, you you're, you talk open and honest, and that's exactly what, what we want to hear. We like straight. We like straight talk without without spin. So with that, we're going to close uh, this episode of uh, Entrepreneur, and thank you all for listening. Also, look at our Facebook group and our. YouTube channel for videos. This brings us to the end of another episode of Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. Go ahead and click over to our website, entrepreneur.com, or head over to Facebook to join our special Facebook group, Entrepreneur. See you there.